Oh, Greg Sweet. As Lois and I were listening to your podcast over the last weeks, uh, one question that came to our mind as you were talking about, it was, it was sort of an ancillary uh, talking about Armageddon uh, or the uh, armies all circling Jerusalem oh. and, and the Lord returning. Our question was, will everybody be there? Uh, that's a good question. I don't fully know. It seemed hard to understand geographically how everyone could be there, but that happens after the decimation of the Earth's population. So the seals wipe out, a third get wiped out by the drinking water, a third. So after a third of a third of a third of a third of a third, maybe it is enough that pretty much everybody's there. Uh, whatever it is, it's enough that God can say all the nations of the world gather around Israel and Jerusalem. Um, it's kind of like when every Israelite gets converted. Okay, every single last Israelite or such an overwhelming majority that you can speak of the whole group. It's one of those two. I couldn't get dogmatic on it. But the earth's population will be greatly, greatly diminished by the time that happens. So you're not dealing with the billions of people that you're dealing with now. But still, even if you're dealing with millions upon millions, it, I don't know. Um, it's a good question. That's my answer. Oh, well, we, more, he's we, got more. We were proud. They've been to away be, for a month. So. We were proud to be part of the six people that listened to your podcast. And, <laughs> and it's about twelve. Not anymore. Not anymore than that. Okay. Mm. Kevin, I'm surprised I'm the first one to say this, but I'm going to be the first. Um, can you? Well, not say this, but ask this. Can you expound upon the part of that verse that says Satan entered Judas? Because that part, as you talked about, is really kind of frightening. Yeah. And I don't quite understand. I mean, obviously, Judas could possibly not have been a believer. Oh, I don't believe he was. It's pretty certain. But, you know, you talked about... Uh, him being given the power to cast out demons, he preached the gospel. Yep. Now we can all do that and not be believers right. acting out just by works. But mm. can you expound upon how we can we can walk in confidence? Yes, yes. Let's start in Ephesians two. I'm going to start with the bad news, explaining the thing with Judas. Um, if anyone's interested, by the way, the best short book I'm aware of. It's out of print, but I have two copies of it. Um, is by David Pallison about demonology, demon deliverance ministry, understanding what's going on today with that. It's called Power Encounters. It's the best short thing I've read. Um, you know, the modern understanding, there's a lot of, um, I think, misunderstanding about demons, demon possession. Honestly, I think any unbeliever is a sitting duck for demon possession. If, if that's what Satan wants. I don't think you're more likely to get demon-possessed by playing with a Ouija board or getting involved in the occult. There's no indication in the scripture that those people who were demon-possessed did things to bring that upon themselves. It's almost treated in Luke like a disease or a sickness, uh, a, an ailment. And in Ephesians 2, I, th- I think I can back that up from Ephesians 2. Um, verse 1. This is all of our former condition. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
every one of us as an unbeliever and every unbeliever alive is following the prince, the power of the air, and, it, and who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So if Judas is an unbeliever, then the first issue of Satan entering him, I think, is solved right there. He, he's a child of the devil. That's how Jesus refers to the Jews in John 8. You're of your father the devil, and your desires to do his will. So I think there's two teams in town, those who are under the sway, influence, power, control of the Holy Spirit, and then there's people just described here in Ephesians 1. Um, the fact that Judas is does perish is, is attested to. He's called the son of damnation or perdition. Jesus says it would be better for him not to have been born than for him, that these things must come, but woe to him to whom they come by. So any sort of romantic notion of Judas maybe slipping by, I think pretty clearly, no. Um, that said, then, because so, I want to make it clear, if you go to Romans 8, it's equally clear that the Spirit of God given in the new covenant to believers precludes demon possession. Uh, Romans 8, pick it up in verse, where is that? Yeah, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we have received the Spirit, and Jesus says, greater is him who is within you than him who is without. And the notion of a demon cohabitating inside of a believer is, I think, impossible. However, that said, Satan can ask to sift Peter. And we're going to see that a little later in Luke. So believers can be tempted, tested by demons, um, but they, they cannot be controlled by them. So I'm, I'm trying to work through, your question's got a bunch of levels. So the first is, what do we make of Judas? I'd say Judas is a sitting duck, just like any unbeliever I would think is. Um, the, the modern notions that you can do things to particularly invite it, I, I don't see any, I mean, maybe that's true. I just don't see where in the Bible we'd get that from. Jesus doesn't say to any demoniac he casts out, hey, don't mess around with that stuff again, or why would you let that happen to yourself, or anything like that. It, it's treated like something that just comes upon them, that they're to be pitied. Um, secondly, Judas is not a believer. Uh, I think that's abundantly clear as much as we may hold, try to hold out hope. Now, the next question is, how then does he work miracles? And I'll eventually get to assurance and confidence. The Old Testament's full of examples, well, full, I can give you a couple, of people who the Spirit of God came upon, they spoke oracularly, they spoke as prophets, they spoke things that are recorded in the Scripture who are not on our team. Balaam is a good example. Balaam can't help but prophesy rightly, even though he's trying to subvert and undermine the people of God. Saul, King Saul, who the Spirit of God comes upon him and he strips naked and prophesies in the gates, spoke by the Spirit of God. Um, the high priest in, this is what it says, the Spirit of God comes upon him. Okay. No. Mitchell, look it up for me. Um, he'll, he'll find it. Absolutely, no, it's, it's weird. It's, and this, this proverb comes in Israel, is Saul numbered among the prophets, is the result. Mitchell's going to find it for me, I have confidence. Um, and even in the New Testament, the high priest says, it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to suffer. He said this because he was a high priest and he spoke better than he knew. So God using corrupt instruments to accomplish his will is, but it is frightening that he's given this type of spiritual power and authority. 
and it's taken back. This, we're not operating under the new covenant. Under the old covenant, David, in, okay, Psalm 51, restore to me, um, uh, what? A clean heart. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why does David say that? Because he saw that happen to Saul. The Spirit of God departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit of the Lord from the Lord went to Saul and tormented him. And so David had seen his, I mean, if you think about Saul's sin versus David's sin, David's is way worse in one sense. He's killed the man, stolen his wife. Saul offered a sacrifice he had no business offering. Saul spared Agag, let them make a statue, kept some of the best animals. But you could argue, I could picture David like, I've done something way worse. Oh, please don't take your spirit from me. Because under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit is not a sign or a seal of salvation. The Holy Spirit would come upon people to do a task, and then the Holy Spirit would you know, leave when the task was done. So judges, the Spirit would come upon them, or kings, or even people making the instruments for the uh, tabernacle and the, and the artisans crafting the ark and the accoutrements for the temple. So don't think of Judas receiving power by God's Spirit as somehow he's a believer. No, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit to do things. He's given power, just like Balaam, just like a donkey spoke, just like others. Saul in the gates. Have you found Saul in the gates yet, Mitchell? No, I don't, I don't know. Okay, I can find it one second. It'll just search Saul prophets. Is that where Saul numbered among the prophets? Um... You know, I think it's First Samuel. Yeah, First Samuel nine and ten. Go, real fast. Pause. Just First Samuel nine and ten. It's a good example. Um, okay. Um, no, it's not nine. That's too early. Nineteen. There it is. Sorry. 19. So Saul tries to kill David. Um, let me pick it up towards the end, uh, verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived in Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is in Naoth at Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing at the head of them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku, and he asked, where is Samuel and David? And one told him, behold, they are in Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Ramah in Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went, as, as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? So we've got precedent that just because the Spirit of God, just because someone's given power, just because the Spirit's working through someone does not indicate the state of their soul. Um, and, I mean, in the Gospels, where do we find the highest statements of Christ's deity? The mouths of demoniacs. Demoniacs. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Which gets to your question. What, what makes the difference between a demon 
and a believer. In one sense, I would argue demons probably have far better theology than we do. They're not deceived in that sense. Like they, they're, I mean, there are things hidden from them, but they know who, do you believe God is one? The demons believe God is one. Their understanding of things in some areas, I'm sure, is far, far more accurate than we are. The difference is, in their heart, they hate it. And the difference in their heart is their affections. Um, do they love God and his law? Do they love God and his rule? It gets back to like the parable of the ten minus. We don't want this man ruling over us. Um, and so, I mean, how, how then do we tell the difference? If, if you go to Matthew 6 and 7, which I alluded to, right? Um, Matthew 7, where Jesus says the Lord, Lord statement. Now, part of the problem with this, um, Kevin, is that we're not told much about Judas and why he did what he did. Some of the other Gospels supply a little information. He was a thief from the beginning. He was kept the money bag, and he stole. So like, it's not like he was sincere and then had this bad turn. He, he was a thief for a while. And people have tried to psychologize. And, and, and if, if that was critical, we'd know, we'd be told. Um, but Jesus makes it clear here, and this is the passage God used to get me lost so I could get saved from thinking I was a Christian because, you know, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid, even though I was living like, you know, um, well, like hell. Chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now pause. Jesus has not just taught salvation by works. He's simply saying the ones whose lives are marked by obedience go to heaven. That does not mean they go to heaven because they obey. He's just connecting something. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Saul could be on that list. Saul's messengers could be in that list, right? Um, And do many mighty cast out demons in your name? Judas could be there. And do many mighty works in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Because, um, and, and again, I want to pause lest you think this is establishing work salvation. Jesus is assuming that out of the abundance of the heart, the actions and the words come. And so if your life is marked by a love of God and his word, it'll then be marked by a life trying to please and serve him. And that will mark that. If your life is marked by working lawlessness, you're a practitioner. It's not like you're someone who sins, and when you see it, you're like, eh, and you, you turn from it. This is, this is your, the word work could almost be translated your occupation. Like you're a worker of silver. There's a worker of lawlessness. If that marks you, you're playing for the other team. You're, you're bearing thistles. Uh, at its heart, if you turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 4, And John Piper's got some really helpful stuff on this because all of this flows out of a changed heart. Um, And so Paul speaks about the difference between those who are perishing and those who don't. And in one respect, you could say the difference between those who perish and those who don't is what they see when they see Jesus in the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 
even if our gospel is veiled, is veiled to those who are perishing. So let's use Judas as our case point. Judas preached the gospel, and yet to him it was veiled, because he perishes. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing, and what is it they don't see? The light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So whatever Judas thought of Jesus, and he could have thought a lot of things about Jesus. He's a powerful miracle worker. He is a prophet. He is a potential military deliverer. Whatever Judas saw when he saw Jesus in his message, he didn't see the light. He didn't see light, the gospel of the glory of Christ. He didn't see something glorious and illuminating. It didn't, didn't make his heart reach out and, and want to embrace that. Um, then go down to verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now there's, there's the contrast. Two people hear the gospel, look at Jesus. One sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Another doesn't. So whatever Judas saw in Christ, whatever he saw that would make him want to be his disciple and follow him around for three years, he didn't see that. Um, so your then question, how do we, how do we have assurance? I, th- I think we have assurance in part by being warned. I mean, the, the New Testament's filled with warnings lest our hearts drift away. It, it's a matter of the heart. In your heart, are you captivated by Christ? In your heart, do you find him attractive? In your heart, do you find sin repellent? Are you confessing your... If you're doing those things, you're a worker of righteousness, right? I mean, you, you're imperfect. If you find your heart cooling to those things, if you um, find yourself drifting away from those things, if you sin and it doesn't convict you and you don't deal with it, you might have cause to be worried. But ultimately, how do we have confidence? We sing, he'll hold me fast. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, I see, here's, if you ask me, Jeremy, what gives you any confidence you're a Christian? I see God's hand and his change and his grace in my life over the last decade. I I see who I used to be. I see how that's changed. I see the new set of desires I have. I see both his blessing and his discipline, and I'm confident that he began a good work will finish it in me. But, I mean, it's, it's a remarkable question. You ask somebody, what makes you think you'll wake up a Christian tomorrow? I'll post later today. I, I tried to get a, a snippet from a sermon I heard two years ago that I thought was excellent by John Piper. That That's his opening question. How would you answer that question? What makes you think you'll be a Christian tomorrow? What confidence do you have you'll wake up a believer tomorrow? And and he's going to do that, right. Um, and I wanted to get a snippet for the messenger, but it wouldn't fit, so it didn't go in. But it, it's ultimately our trust is in him. Even as we have to... So here's the tension. One of the ways God keeps us faithful and believing is through the warnings in the New Testament that tell us, hey, look out, you know. So Hebrews 3.12, beware lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God, but encourage each other day after day while it's still called today, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have become partakers in Christ if we hold fast our confidence firm to the end. Um, notice he, so there are things we need to do. One of the reasons we gather on Sunday morning is so that our hearts don't cool in our love for Christ. One of the reasons we gather in weekly in small groups is so we can encourage each other. I need encouragement. I need you all for me to continue to be faithful. Yet I've also seen that when I you know, start to stray, God 
you know, the shepherd comes along with his stick and gives me a whack or two, and you know, I, but okay, is that I don't know if that's helping or asking Grayson question. Keep going, go, Kevin. That's rather than me just keep jabbering. I'll pause and you tell me what. Oh, we got all sorts of hands now. Okay, here we go. So, could we say if he has? done that work in me, I have confidence yes. in him completing it? Yes. <laughs> so, do we live our life that way? If he has done that work in me? Well, no, it's, it's both. No, it's, okay, go to Hebrews 3. Let me show you something. Go to Hebrews 3. The problem is, biblically, if you, were to, if you were to say biblically, what should we look to for grounds for assurance? There's a number of answers the Bible gives. Um, biblically, there's a number of answers. And I think we can meet some of those now. One of them is you die faithfully. That's, that's the one I just quoted. For we have become partakers in Christ if we hold fast our, our confidence firm to the end. I can't possess that test. I can't pass that test because I'm still alive. Right? Um, so there's varying layers and causes of assurance. We read in Hebrews 8 about, I mean, first, in, in uh, Romans 8, about how his spirit testifies with our spirit. So at the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit, that's a cause of assurance. It's experiential, existential. His spirit testifies in my spirit that we are sons of God, right? There's a cognitive level. Jesus says, if you believe, you'll be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I've called upon the name of the Lord. I'll be saved. But there are others as well. And we'll look at some of them. And some of them, some of them are simple, pass, check, fails, or pass and fail. Others are a little more tricksy. So the tension is, in one paragraph, the author of Hebrews is going to speak in incredibly confident terms to his audience and conditional terms to his audience. And I think the tension, Kevin, in this, this it's, it's a tension, and we don't like tension, is we need to be able to say both. I need to be able to say both. We need to be able to say both the first and last sentence of this paragraph in Hebrews 3. So verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. I mean, that's pretty strong language, right? Holy brothers, elect, you might as well say, you share in a heavenly calling. And he goes on to talk about Jesus is greater than Moses, for Moses was faithful in a house, but Jesus is over the house. And then verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and then he shifts not to you brothers, but we, the inspired author of Scripture adds himself to this conditional clause. We are his house if, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And, and you want to say, well, it's one or the other. In one paragraph, holy brothers shares in the heavenly calling. And we're all Christians if we make it to the end. And so... We want to think one cancels the other out. If you say the end, then you'll never have any assurance. Apparently not. If you say the first, I know I'm a Christian, but I've actually met somebody, somebody I love dearly back in New Hampshire, who because of his confidence thought all these warnings were for other people. I'm like, no, no, he's writing to the he's holy brothers. So there's a, I must keep believing if I expect to go to heaven. And I'm trusting that the good shepherd will keep me believing. That's, that's, that's the only answer. Lee, you want to say something to that? Yeah. Go to it. No, Greg, you're next. Um, and part of that is that as it's an experiential part of it that every day and as time goes on, you realize your weakness and that it is Christ. 
that, yeah, if it wasn't for Christ, I'd be totally lost. And I'm clinging to that because if it's up to me, I'm lost. But he will hold us fast so we can just totally focus on who he is and learn more about him. And your trust grows because of who he is. Right, right. Greg? Well, my comment, I guess, had to do with uh, questioning what Kevin's question really was. Uh, If his question was, how do I know I'm going to be a believer uh, and would then will be immune from any uh, 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 satanic, satanic involvement. That's one thing. But another is, can, a, can I, a, as a believer, uh, suffer uh, indwelling by, the, by Satan? And the, and the answer to that, I don't think you've really oh. addressed yet. Okay. So the answer to that is, well, no, because the Holy Spirit is within you. Uh, the, Satan is not going to co- dwell with the Holy Spirit. Okay. You're absolutely right. I thought I said that. Oh, I beg your pardon. Oh, no, 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 no. It's worth saying again, Greg. It's worth saying again. Absolutely not. And and again, if this is a topic you're interested in, I I would highly recommend um, a little book by Paulison on this, which I think is just excellent. Um, I'll be happy to lend out. You won't be able to find it because it's out of print. No, but absolutely. Amen. Now, believers can be sifted and tested by Satan. Peter's the example. Satan can afflict you externally. He can, you know, that, that's possible. Our enemy like a, is like a roaring lion walking around seeking whom he may devour. But he cannot dwell within you and, and possess you and control you. You're not, on, you're not one of his um, subjects any longer. I mean, that's really the language of the New Testament. You were under his domain. You were under his rule, the God of this world. You're his subjects and your will was to do his will, you've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness, placed in the kingdom of light, and so you're under a different ruler, therefore he can't just do what he pleases with you. Absolutely, Greg, amen. Kingery in the back. Jeremy, could you com- comment on, uh, uh, I'm looking at my notes here, I'm sorry, yeah. on, on, uh, on all the details that had to happen that were sequenced perfectly for Jesus to go to the cross, even the right day. Yeah. That, and yet you have people on the internet saying, well, Jesus just took advantage of all, which is impossible to say. How can, no one can take advantage of the, no, the day that he died, right. just one of them, where he was born, all those prophecies had to be fulfilled. Yeah. And I, I find that some very intelligent people, you know, come across uh, with these kinds of arguments. I wanted to use uh, another I word, but uh, I'll use very intelligent. And then also, could you comment why the Jews, some of the Jews, not all the, the elect Jews don't talk this way, why they deny um, all the messianic prophecies after Jesus, after, it just happens to be after Jesus fulfilled them, they are denying yeah. the traditional view that those were messianic prophecies right. for the long time. Right. And, and I think I'm... Well, I will take a stab at that, Dave, before you get a third question in. Um, <laughs> so I will list a few. Um, Josh McDowell has a book this big listing all the messianic prophecies and fulfillment. There's dozens and dozens and dozens and scores upon the scores of them. And admittedly, some of them aren't as impressive as others. And that freely, you know, Jesus knew it was written, behold, your king comes humbly on a donkey, and Jesus sends the disciples to get a donkey. Well, that's, that's 
you know, that's not as impressive. The fact that Jesus prophetically knew exactly where one would be, told them what to say, and it lined up, that, that is more impressive. It's kind of impressive Jesus had no control over where he was born, or that his parents would flee down to Egypt when he was far too young for anything. Or what tribe he was born in. Right. And we see Satan entering. Now, here's what's really interesting. Satan enters Judas. As much as Jesus sets everything up, he sets up the Last Supper, he sets up all those things. What prompts Satan to enter Judas? As far as we can tell, nothing. The key that starts the gears turning. Now, in Luke's narrative, right? Satan's awaiting for his opportune time. It's the last time we see him. He waited for an opportune moment. Next time he shows up, he enters Judas. Now, we know, Luke's showing us, that the event that triggers the machinery turning, because the day Judas goes to tell them, they arrest him that night. No, it doesn't necessarily have to be that day. That's when it's drawing near. No, no, it's in that week. It's only under the heading the Passover is drawing near. So it could be a day or two before. But the point is, they can't arrest Jesus until Judas comes and says, hey, I'll sell him out. And that is not initiated by Jesus in the text. It's initiated by Satan. So how could Jesus, unless he's God, know and determine when Judas would go do that? Because we know it has to be, Luke's already said, the lamb has to be killed on the Passover day. And Jesus does not do anything in the text to overtly influence when Judas goes and betrays him. So that one's really going to be difficult for him to manipulate if he's only a man. That's going to be really difficult for him to fake if he's only human. Um, there, there are scores of others being betrayed by his close friend, right? Um, so I, I'm not in a position to quote all of the Messianic prophecies listed, but certainly there are plenty of them that are nearly impossible. to. You can't come up with a credible list of how someone would fake that like you can with the donkey. The donkeys, admittedly, that could be faked. That's not as, you know, Jesus says as much. I'm doing this to fulfill what is written, you know. Um, but there's tons of others that don't. Why do the Jews not recognize Jesus as their Messiah? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3. In fact, go to 2 Corinthians 3. That passage we read about the veil actually is referencing the Jews. Here's the short answer, Dave. They're blind. They're blind, and they're under the influence and sway of the God of this world. That's Paul's explanation um, in, in 2 Corinthians 3. I just thought it was interesting that, they, that before Jesus, those prophecies were messianic. Oh, oh no. no that, he's, Dave's absolutely right. If you look at like old pre-BC rabbinic interpretations of, say, Isaiah 63, um, the suffering servant, it's the coming Messiah. After Jesus, all of a sudden, it's the national history of Israel. Yes. That's, you can see rabbinic reinterpretations of passages after Christ because they look too much like Jesus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but let me just read 2 Corinthians 3 um, about the Jews. Um, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. 
They're, they're blinded. Again, it's not an honor. In one sense, it's not their fault. In the other sense, it's not a morally um, neutral blindness. They're, they're, they're blind, but they're blind because they're influenced by the devil. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And not just them, but all unbelievers. I mean, it, it, Paul goes on in, when we read earlier in 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. So that, that's why. Um, okay. Yes, Elsa, this is the time of the Gentiles. But plenty of Jews have come to Christ. I mean, in the opening chapters of Acts, you've got about 5,000 um, who come to Christ. So it's not that Jews are not becoming Christians, but by and large, according to Paul in Romans 9, 10, 11, the nation's been hardened. There's a remnant, and the rest is hardened. Wanda, are you up next? Okay. So can we assume that Jesus picked Judas, because he knew he was going to betray him? Well, we're told, not in Luke, um, hold on, let me find it, knew from beginning, from the beginning. I think it's John 6 is where that's going to be. Yeah, John six forty four. In John six forty four, um, Jesus has just said this really hard teaching about eating my flesh, drinking my blood. Many people turned away. The disciples said, many of his disciples heard it and said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? What then if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who those were who did not believe. And it was who, and who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew from the beginning Judas would betray him. John 6, 64. Sorry. Now, but also notice something else. There's nothing we can see that Jesus treated Judas any differently. That his love and his grace and his kindness. In other words, the disciples don't pick up on any differentiation of treatment of Jesus to Judas and Jesus to the other disciples. Um, It's remarkable. Again, that when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they don't all sort of, Look at Judas there. Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Alex, use the microphone. Um, just on John 644, I remember back when you were in the earlier part of Luke, like two years ago or whenever that was. Um, how God, amazing. God, winning, God willing, we'll finish Luke before the end of 2018. Wow. Um, I just remember that it really struck me as amazing when you were talking about Jesus praying through so long who he would choose as his disciples, who mm. those 12 would be, and talking about one of those disciples was going to be one who would betray him. And so in a way, it's almost like he was praying for wisdom on who that person was to be also. No, no, absolutely. And again, go to, go to Luke 6. I believe it's Luke 6. Or 5, one of the two. 6. No, it's right. Because remember, we've argued that Jesus in John's gospel is not functionally omniscient. He, he doesn't know things at times. Um, he's, he's, 
He's God. He, I say functionally because I don't want to say he gave up on this. He's not using it. He's not utilizing it. Who touched me, he says. And here, before he picks the disciples, he doesn't, Luke doesn't present him, of course I know who to pick, I'm God. He spends the whole night in prayer beforehand. The implication is only through long, devoted times of prayer is Jesus ready and prepared to pick who his disciples will be. Um, and that's, I think, the point Alex is getting at. So um, in um, 6.12, in those days he went out on the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called the disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. So Luke would have us, I think, understand his wisdom and his knowing who to pick is the result of a night of prayer not a result of, I know everything, I'm God. Is that, is that kind of what you're getting at? That's, yeah. It's, well, the thing that hits me is, if the sinless Son of God needs prayer for wisdom, how much more do, <laughs> do I? Um, do you want to add anything more to that, Alex? Or is that what you were... Oh. I thought it was cool, too, thinking, well, amazing, thinking that one of those 12 was going to be the person who would betray him. And so he was praying for wisdom on who that person would be as well. Well, and just think of, yeah, think of the heartache. He's not, I mean, all the suffering Jesus embraces, including the suffering of a close friend betraying him. And honestly, in order for the psalm to be fulfilled, it has to be a close friend. It's not like Jesus. See, most of us want to protect ourselves from suffering. So that's one of the reasons some people won't open up to people. I've been hurt. I want to get hurt again. Jesus actually, I truly believe, becomes close friends with Judas. It's not like, well, I know you're going to betray me, so yeah, I'm going to... And it's not an act. I'm going to act like we're friends. Um, no, it's, it's, uh, it's a real betrayal. It's not, it's not theater. No, Lee, well, the, the 12 people you heard, the six people want to hear, Lee. Well, it's also neat because when you think that here he's truly loving this, uh, you know, betrayer, his eventual murderer in a sense, and that how that's a picture of how he, he loves everybody that's, you know, essentially we all betray him yeah. be- before we, you know, come to him. So yeah. he's totally loving and kind and merciful. And, and Ju- you know, Judas had every opportunity not to do it, I'm sure, so... Absolutely. Yeah, and Judas, Judas has such a small role in Luke's gospel. He's listed among the 12. There it's listed who became a betrayer, verse 16 of chapter 6. He shows up here. He shows up and kisses, would, would kiss. Jesus stops that. And then he's done. And we only find out about his, um, his end in the first chapter of Acts when they replace Judas, and Peter stands up and recounts what happened to him. So Luke does not spend a lot of time with the camera on Judas as if we're supposed to like psychoanalyze him and figure out why he did what he did. What the point is, I think, the intimate betrayal, that's Luke's, the one detail, he was one of the 12. You know, we're supposed to, wow, what a betrayal. What, what? You know, and I think thinking through, he was one of the ones that had authority over demons. Now Satan's indwelling him. How did that happen? I mean, think of that, that ironic twist. At one point in, in, in Judas's life, he was given authority over all demons. Yet at the end of his life, Satan's dwelling in him. That's what 9, 1, and 2 says, right? In Luke 9, 1 and 2. Um, 9, 1. 
He called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over all demons. He goes from that to Satan entered him and presumably having full control. It's quite a reversal. Quite a reversal. Oh, Steve Sparks. I object. You object. That Judas had every opportunity. Uh, we know that from the beginning, he was the, quote, betrayer. Yes. Uh, he was under the devil's influence. Yes. When this happened. Yes. And I think if I heard everything correctly... I think you said it's not about me, and I can't say the devil made me do it. Yes. Thank you. You're you're bringing up again the tension um, that, well, it's 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 if you go back to the four week series you did in election predestination, it's the first week. It's the tension. in, in theological terms, it's called concurrence. In philosophical terms, it's called compatibilism. But it's the belief, I believe the Bible lays out that absolute sovereign plan and, and, and causality does not negate or in any way um, mitigate human volition or responsibility. So what you're saying is if it was planned and if from the foundation of the world God said this is the way it was going to be and if he did everything according to God's preordained plan, then how can we say he had every opportunity and any chance? To which I say, because I see the Bible lay things out that way. You meant this for evil, God meant it for good. Um, Or even go to Acts, the early church saw this way. Go to Acts um, 6, I think 6, maybe 5. Um, let me see, I'll find it. It's where they pray, sovereign God. Um, where is it? Here it is, four, Acts 4. Okay? So here, here, here are the events of the crucifixion looked at. So they quote Psalm 2, verse 25. Um, oh, let's go back before 25. Go to Acts 4, 23. So the, Peter and John got arrested, beaten, and released. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage, the people's plot, quoting Psalm 2, the people's plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then they see a partial fulfillment of that in, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And yet that doesn't excuse them in their eyes. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and to, um, to heal and signs and wonders and perform through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken. So God says amen, in effect. 
Um, he agrees, thinks it's a good prayer. So they're able to simultaneously speak of the guilt of these people and God's sovereign plan in these people. Now, I, I'll say this again. I do not presume to explain how those two things work together. I, I don't have a chart that can explain it for you. I'm just saying I think again and again and again and again the Bible insists those two things do work together. So positively, Philippians 2, 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who's at work within you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Well, is it me working out my salvation or is it God at work? Yes. Um, so my definition of freedom, which I get from Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, is you are free, and this gets back to Judas having every opportunity, if you can do whatever you want. If your will is not constrained, I want to go left, but something is making me go right. If what you want, you're not able to do because something else is interfering. That's my definition of freedom that, that I'm working with. In that sense, Judas is entirely free. Judas gets to do whatever he wants to do. Um, I don't see any conflict with that understanding of freedom and God's sovereignty. So I can say Judas was free to do whatever he wanted to do. Judas could do whatever he desired to do. And what Judas did was sovereignly determined, planned, and brought about by a sovereign God. And I will freely admit there's a realm of mystery in those two statements. But I just want to say, no, no, no. The mistake is to think I understand that. Like I understand how God works, but I work together. I, I don't. I'm just insisting... I think again and again and again, the Bible says this is the way things work. This is the world we live in. And so I'm like, okay. So no one, up until the point where Satan entered Judas, at which point I think we'd argue Satan has control of him. Up until that, but Judas does whatever Judas wants. No one's making Judas do anything against his will. He's a, and even here, I'd think he's a willing participant to what he does. He consents. He, you know, he amends the actions. Um, but yeah, you're, 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 you're spotting that tension of sovereignty and responsibility. I now freely grant there's a tension, Steve. But my answer again is I think the world we live in is the world where I'll say it, I'll say it as ridiculously as possible. God sovereignly causes, brings about the things I freely choose. But that's what I believe. I mean, now, now, and I'll say it as foolishly as that. Like that's what I'm arguing. I don't know how. But again and again and again and again, see, that's what the Bible lays out, that that's the world we live in. So I'll say it as, as, as foolishly as that, sure. That's unapologetically what I think lays out in the Bible. So uh, in other words, I won't try to use big words to get around the obvious tension there. Sure. We are, we are out of time, folks, so I will bid you adieu, and I have some birthday festivities to get to, apparently. So... <laughs>